Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome. My name is Tim Robertson. I'm the director of the Royal Society of Literature, uh, and this evening's event is uh, part of our spring-summer season of events, um, as well as being part of the LSE's Literature Festival. Uh, and uh, we have for you this evening two of our fellows of the Royal Society of Literature, uh, Robert Harris, uh, who has been one of our fellows since 1996, uh, when uh, our uh, people are invited, <coughs> writers are invited to be fellows of the Royal Society, uh, they're invited to sign a roll book. Uh, using either Byron's quill or T.S. Eliot's fountain pen. I don't know which Robert uh, used, but he may tell us this evening. Uh, And uh, introducing him is another of our fellows uh, and a member of our governing council, Peter Kemp, who is the chief fiction reviewer for the Sunday Times. Uh, And without more ado, I'm going to hand over to Peter. Uh, Thank you very much indeed, Tim, and uh, good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to this conversation with Robert Harris. Um, Our subject for this event is the political novel, and um, I can't imagine anyone better to discuss this with than, than Robert, who's made an outstanding career out of his passion for politics and his brilliance as a novelist. Um, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that politics is Robert's passion because a few weeks ago um, I heard him on the Michael Barclay Private Passions Programme on Radio 3 um, offering his uh, choice of music and I'm pretty sure Robert must be the only guest ever to appear on Private Passions who chose a piece played by a politician as one of his choices of favourite music. He chose um, a piece of a Bach um, keyboard concerto uh, played by Helmut Schmidt, the West German Chancellor. (laughs) And for good measure, he had a speech by Michael Foots as one of his choices uh, as as well. I didn't have a piece played by Edward Heath. I mean, at least I can say. There's lots of even balancing, I'm sure. Um, Robert's fascination with politics was something that started very early uh, as a six-year-old schoolboy. He wrote an essay called uh, Why Me and My Dad Don't Like Sir Alec Douglas Hume. (laughs) And uh, unsurprisingly, given that, after reading English at Cambridge, uh, he went into political journalism. Uh, He was a reporter on the BBC's Newsnight and Panorama, He became political editor of The Observer, and he went on also to write um, political columns for The Sunday Times and The Daily Telegraph, and received a columnist of the year award in connection with this. Um, He began a a second career, not just as a journalist, but as an author, uh, with four non-fiction books, uh, Gotcha, which was about the media, the government, and the Falklands crisis. He published that in 1983 followed it very rapidly with three other non-fiction books, The Making of Neil Kinnock, Neil Kinnock um, Selling Hitler, the story of the forged Hitler diaries, and Good and Faithful Servant, the unauthorised biography of Bernard Ingham. Very unauthorised, I, 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 I think, really. Um, and, and then Robert made a spectacular move across into fiction, 
uh, with his best-selling 1992 novel Fatherland, uh, set in Berlin in 1964 in an alternative world in which the Nazis won the war and Hitler's 75th birthday celebrations were looming. Followed that with Enigma, uh, about the codebreakers in Bletchley Park in 1995, Archangel in 1998, uh, uh, which was set in modern Russia, but very much dealt with the legacy of Stalin. And the three books there really about political totalitarianism. And then he switched back to ancient Rome, to the first century AD with Pompeii, um, about um, the city just before the um, volcano erupted. And he took a very ingenious way into uh, dealing with Pompeii. You, accept, you expect a novel about Pompeii in the first century AD um, to begin with lots of reference to fire and lava and eruptions. In fact, it starts with a water problem, and the central character is a kind of plumber, really. It's a sort of nightmare plumbing problem. It's the first sign that uh, Vesuvius is starting to uh, wake up. Um, Pompeii is a terrifically thrilling and exciting read, but it's also a very significant novel, I think, in that it marks a shift in Robert's fictional interest. It moves him to the ancient world, and although Pompeii itself was not really a particularly political novel, it was followed by um, three novels that very much were. Uh, a trilogy of novels about Cicero, uh, set in the first century BC, at a time when the Roman Republic is in its last years and um, Rome is on the way to dictatorship and empire. Three novels, Imperium, Lustrum and Dictator, which is uh, Robert's latest novel to date. They were interspersed uh, with other novels such as The Ghost, about a disgraced British prime, prime Minister, not unlike Tony Blair, um, uh, and uh, the way in which a ghostwriter uh, of his um, memoirs uh, finds some horrifying revelations coming his way. There's also The Fear Index, very ingenious novel, which updates the Frankenstein story and um, relates it to the banking crisis and a novel about the Dreyfus affair, an officer and a spy. So a wide range of settings, wider in both in place and time, um, but politics at the centre of it. And the other thing about all those books, I should say, is that Robert is, is one of those authors whose name on a book jacket is like a gold-crested guarantee of quality. When you open a novel by him, you're sure of getting at least three different kinds of satisfaction. An unputdownable suspense narrative, um, a vivid, knowledgeable evocation of a time and place and era, and acute and intensely fascinated and fascinating excursions into the sphere of politics or current social concerns. Um, enthrallment with politics is something that's very much to the fore in almost all Robert's fiction. Um, there's an absolutely epitomising moment, I think, in the first of the Cicero trilogy, where someone says to Cicero that they find politics rather dull, and Cicero indignantly says, politics, boring. Politics is history on the wing. What other sphere of human activity 
calls forth all that is most noble in men's souls and all that is most base or has such excitement or more vividly exposes our strengths and weaknesses. Think Cicero there is really Robert in a toga. Um, he, he, he's um, offering Robert's uh, manifesto. So I want to start, Robert, first of all, by asking you where did this fascination come from? I mean, it obviously goes back a long way. Uh, well, uh, I really did write uh, Why Me and My Dad Don't Like Sir Alec Douglas Hume, and, uh, and uh, my uh, father went and heckled Alec Douglas Hume in the 64 election when he came to speak in Nottingham uh, and I suppose it started then uh, he was passionately interested in politics and uh, uh, I became so too also uh, history kind of in, intertwined with that uh, in 1957 when I was born it was only 12 years after the Second World War and in Nottingham there were still <coughs> bomb sites and the television programs were dominated by documentaries about the war and everyone you knew had been through the war the war was talked about all the time and so these two things uh, politics which was a passion of my father's and uh, uh, the aftermath, the overhang of the second world war which anyone was born at the end of the 50s grew up with, uh, I think that they they very much uh, entered my uh, mind at a, a young age in, a, in probably a rather unhealthy way looking back on it. Anyway, it's given me a living. Uh. <laughs> Before it did that, when you were at Cambridge, were you involved with political societies and so on there, and student life? And- uh, yes, I was. I was chairman of the uh, Fabian Society and I was president of the union um, and uh, had a terrific time. Uh, um, met a lot of politicians uh, I actually had Jim Callaghan when he was Prime Minister came and spoke at a meeting and uh, you know at one point I thought I might like to be a, a Labour politician but uh, I'm very glad that I, I didn't follow that course because I think you know uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a mode of thinking which is uh, uh, political uh, and, and one which is that of a writer. And in the end, I'm, I'm much more of a writer. I, I don't think I could have subscribed to the discipline of being a politician. Uh, but it's given me a kind of sneaking sympathy for politicians uh, and for all the abuse that's heaped on them. I have a kind of instinctive uh, empathy with people who are struggling to deal with these problems. Uh, you know... Uh, I don't have to get up and worry about the junior doctors or, uh, or, or Brexit or any of these other things. But some people do, uh, and I think it's too easy to just sort of uh, mock them. So it's given me a kind of imaginative sympathy in a way with politicians, which I tried to express in the, in the books about Cicero. Cicero is a very sneaky, slippery uh, character who's greatly disliked by people like Theodore Momsen, as a, as a, who called him, you know, the very lowest form of journalist. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> but I always, I've always, I had a kind of sneaking regard for Cicero, trying to keep the show on the road against impossible odds. And, and it was that sort of feeling which led me to fix upon him as a character. Did, did you always have in mind when you were at Cambridge that you would like to have a career initially as a political reporter? No, I wanted to write, mm. and I uh, needed to earn a living. Mm. And uh, so it was a, it was a ma- I knew then I had to be a journalist, and it was a question of um, 
what kind of journalist I'd be. At that time in the 70s, there was very strict uh, NUJ rules about coming to work for a Fleet Street paper, apart from the FT, uh, which was because it was specialist. You could be a specialist financial journalist. Otherwise, you had to go and work in the provinces for quite a long time. I, I can't remember it was three years or five years. I, I came from the provinces. I didn't want to go back there. <laughs> and uh, so the only other option was to try and get a traineeship uh, with a television company. And I got one with the BBC. And it was just a general sort of researcher, dog's body, on, on uh, programmes like Nationwide and Panorama. Uh, and so fell into te- television. And then, But always my interest was in politics. And I wrote... Um, as you said, my first solo book was uh, about the Falklands War, uh, and then I wrote a biography of Neil Kinnock, not a great bestseller, <laughs> and not much read these days. But uh, I, I, it was interesting. I got to know the Labour Party, and then, then when the Observer needed a new political correspondent, uh, Anthony Howard, who was then a deputy, deputy editor, rang me up on the basis of the Kinnock book, actually, and asked me if I wanted to do it. So I, I moved then from television into newspapers, and, and then became a full-time political journalist. And, and then in 1992, <coughs> you published a work of fiction. Um, a few years ago, um, on, there was a 20th century anniversary edition of Fatherland, and in the introduction to that, you say that when you started writing fiction, I felt as if a whole powerful section of my mind was switched on for the first time. Is, is that right? I mean, had you not had a feeling before that you would like to write fiction, that you'd like to explore political ideas, problems, situations uh, in fiction? It just suddenly was with Fatherland that you realised you could do that. Yes, it was a... I mean, as I say, I was, it was a very pragmatic approach to writing. I liked writing. I enjoyed writing. How could I earn a living and write? So uh, television, then into newspapers writing non-fiction books. I didn't really have... Like, I mean, everybody, most people, a lot of people here, I'm sure, dream of writing a novel, would like to do it. I, I did too, but I hadn't really anything to say. I didn't really have any... Well, I mean, there was nothing I wanted to say in a novel that I couldn't write as non-fiction. Um, and then, um, because of this interest that I had in the Second World War... When the Hitler Diaries affair came along, I'd done a lot of uh, reports for uh, the BBC, for Newsnight, about wartime subjects. And oddly enough, one of the people I'd got to know was David Irving. Uh, then, not, then a sinister person, but not quite as sinister as he later became. Um, <laughs> My association with Irving actually is interesting because when I was chairman of the Fabian Society at Cambridge, of all things, I'd seen Irving, who'd just published Hitler's War, on the Frost programme. And uh, I thought, he looks a controversial figure, I'll invite him (laughs) to Cambridge. And of course, uh, all hell broke loose. And uh, I, uh, especially as the Fabian Society, so I made a great declaration about the importance of free speech and having anyone on the campus to talk uh, and then as the chairman, I had to, the custom was that the visiting speaker arrived at the railway station in Cambridge, I would take them out to lunch and then bring them to the meeting and uh, I'll never forget meeting Irving at the <laughs> Cambridge railway station, this figure came off the train, hair slanted down like this, cleft in his <laughs> upper lip 
So this figure came towards me, and I put my life on the line saying free speech and so on. And he literally, this is true, he met me, he shook, me, shook my hand, and he said, congratulations, you've shaken the hand that shook the hand that shook the hand of the Führer. <laughs> so that, that, that was the beginning of it. Uh, Anyway, oddly enough, he, was, he, gave, he, was, he gave a brilliant performance in front of the Favour Society, which was picketed and was packed with people. Uh, he said that uh, he'd, this was his second visit to Cambridge in a month. He'd been at uh, Peterhouse giving a, a speech uh, two weeks previously. Uh, he said, and I thought I was right-wing, he said. So. LAUGHTER <laughs> Anyway, sorry, that's a digression. So, the, uh, so Irving, and, uh, who I knew, and the Hitler Diaries affair broke, and I rang him, and he said, oh, he's a forger, as I saw Hitler Diaries. And uh, so I wrote that book, to cut a long story short, and it was full of the most bizarre and extraordinary characters, and I put in a lot of detail, and it was really pushing uh, non-fiction quite close to being fictional. And indeed, it was made into a television series with... Um, Roger Lloyd Pack played David Irving and uh, uh, Alan Bennett played Hugh Trevor Roper and uh, uh, Barry Humphreys played Rupert Murdoch. So it was... It, <laughs> I had a drive... I know, it's, it, it is great and you can get it on DVD. So I'd arrived at a, at a position quite close to fiction. Yeah. And uh, when I finished the book, I thought... Uh, this is fascinating, Hitler, because I'd read all the Hitler's table talk and I thought, wouldn't it make a great non-fiction book to write a, an account of the world as it might have been if Hitler had won the war? Uh, he had these plans for 100 million German settlers in the Ukraine uh, and all the rest of it. But would people, would Germans really have wanted in the 1960s to go and live in these little farms or big farms in the Ukraine and so on? So I thought, I'll write, I'll take all the German planning. They had 4,000 civil servants just working on post-war planning. So there's an enormous amount of maps and plans and photographs of models of buildings and so on. And I thought, I will write an, a, a Baedeker guide to a world that never existed. That was my plan. And I set about researching it. And after about two months, I realised there was no way I could do this unless I invented characters, unless I had people living in this world to try and describe what it was like and, and I can only say that then it was like passing through a, a looking glass into another world of imagination in which the political ideas about Nazism and the Third Reich I could only explore through the creation of characters and from that uh, Saturday morning I remember right starting I wrote the first paragraph of Fatherland from that day to this I've never written uh, non-fiction uh, since, um, because it just seemed to me so much more powerful a tool to explore uh, the things that interested me and turn them into stories, effectively. It's a really interesting way into fiction that you took, isn't it? Because you'd almost accidentally done a, or unknowingly done a lot of research for the novel, I suppose, when you were um, preparing for the selling Hitler. Book. Yeah, well, people say if you want to be a novelist, write about what you like. You know, mm. no, sorry, what, write about what you know. Mm. And so people, you know, but I, what I knew, my life it was bo boring, really, fairly boring to me, let alone to try and tell it to everybody else. But what, what, what I did know about, oddly, were these strange passions 
for politics and uh, events and ideologies and, and institutions, curiously. And so I did write about what, uh, what I knew, and that is what I've tried to go on uh, doing. And uh, I'm fortunate in that, as a writer, if you turn out in that way, you can never really run out of material. Uh, if, I was, if I'd gradually moved through the phases of my life from comprehensive school to comprehensive schoolboy goes to Cambridge to Cambridge, comprehensive schoolboy goes to the BBC. You know, you can see the sequence of novels now, how dull they would be. <laughs> they have been written by others. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <coughs> uh, it, it's not something I'd want to do. But yeah, I, I think you must be someone who very much enjoys research because, uh, you know, it seems to me that all of your novels, a really formidable amount of background reading has to go into them. I mean, something, you know, you, you've, you've spoken about the Hitler um, world, as it, as it were, and the future that Hitler envisaged. Um, but you think of other books. I mean, uh, Archangel, huge amount of research into Stalin's world there, are, uh, I think. Bletchley Park, of course, quite a lot of research. Um, an officer and a spy. That must have entailed a lot of research into French politics. And most of all, of course, the, the Cicero trilogy. You must have done huge amounts of reading for that, Robert, I would have thought. Yes, yeah, so, um, some of them were... Well, Fatherland was like a sort of lifelong unhealthy obsession, so that the research wasn't too bad. Uh, Enigma was a nightmare of a book to write because Father had been, Fatherland had been so successful. And Enigma, at the time when I set out to write that, uh, a lot of the senior codebreakers were still alive. Mm. I mean, Alan Turing's uh, fiance, who incidentally looked nothing like Kira Knightley, I can tell you, <coughs> uh, <laughs> who I interviewed in Oxford. Uh, and various other people, uh, you know, I, I talked to, and, I, and a lot of them were still very nervous about talking about what they knew. So it was a very, very hard book uh, to write, and, and, and also the mathematics and so on. It was, a, it was a nightmare. Not a very happy experience, actually, looking back on it. Uh, and so, yes, and then Archangel, I went to Russia uh, and uh, went up to Arch Archangel to research it. So I've done quite a lot uh, of on-the-ground research. Pompeii was a delight to write because I used to go in January or February to the Bay of Naples. And, uh, you know, it was to wander around an almost deserted Pompeii uh, or, or Mycenaeum uh, was, was delightful. Uh, an Officer and a Spy, curiously, was almost the least amount of research I've ever done on a book, even though it's the longest book. Mm -hmm and uh, seems to be extremely detailed, it is extremely detailed, but uh, uh, oddly enough, um, almost all the research I needed was online, all the documents, uh, and, and France has changed so little, you know, Paris hasn't changed, the streets, you know, you can still see Colonel Picard's apartment near L'Etoile, and you can, the streets, the journey down to the, to the, the, you know, the, uh, uh, the war ministry is exactly the same as the, the, the journey he would have taken. So that was all quite easy. Um, I suppose the most formidable research job was Cicero, because uh, not least because there's very little you can actually see. That is, you know, it was all bulldozed and knocked down by the uh, emperors. So <clears throat> the, what, what exists of the Roman Republic is very scant indeed. So that was mainly a, a literary research job. 
and, and to just get through Cicero takes you a good year, I would think. Yeah. <clears throat> yes, I read about you going to Blackwell's and uh, filling your car with Loeb classics and works yes, by Cicero. It was a good day for the Blackwell classics department. I must say, <laughs> they, were, they were pleased to see me. <laughs> How did you find the actual um, early stages of writing fiction? I mean, you've done the research and so on, but it's still something different from writing a non-fiction book, isn't it? And um, Did you initially find it was tricky working out things like tone, angle of approach, whose voice you would use to tell the story and things like that? Yes, I did, and it's still very tricky. You know, one of the things, I think, oddly enough, it was Lord Beaverbrook, of all people, who said the thing about writing is you never, you never know the next day whether you can do what you did the day before, uh, which is very true. It's always a constant, you know, attempt to uh, have to start all over again. Mm. Uh, and uh, you you have to learn completely new techniques. I mean, the great difference between fiction and journalism is journalism is essentially uh, all up front, simple. A lot of fiction is to do with hiding and concealment. Um, And Fatherland, I learned on the job. I mean, I started uh, writing it. I was commissioned to write it. uh, a publisher who'd published a book by Tim Sebastian, who, some of you may remember the BBC Poland correspondent, he, he wrote a thriller, it did quite well. She was looking around for other journalists who might write a novel. I'd had this idea about Hitler winning the war. She took me out to lunch. These were the great days of publishing. <laughs> she said, oh, I'll, I'll publish that. And she gave me an advance. I didn't even have to write anything down. And then I was left with the problem of uh, trying to write it. And uh, so uh, I can remember it very clearly that I wrote for about 30 pages or so, 20, 30 pages, and had all my characters in a room. uh, And uh, they didn't know why they were there. And I (laughs) I realized that I didn't know why they were there either. And uh, I just hit a complete mental wall. And I literally put the book away for a year. Uh, and then my agent, uh, the late uh, and missed, uh, much missed Pat, Pat Kavanagh, sent me, uh, who's, who's also the agent here for, Dave, for uh, not David Irving, John Irving, uh, <laughs> <laughs> different cove entirely, sent me uh, an essay he'd written about how you can't write a work of fiction unless you know how it ends because uh, a work of fiction is a recounting of something that has already happened, and you should know the, the whole thing before you begin. Otherwise, it's not true. It's, it's not real. And, uh, uh, of course, there's other ways of writing fiction, but I do think that's profoundly true. And I suddenly realized that what I, I should approach writing fiction as, as, a, as a journalist or as a reporter. It's something that's happened, and now I have to tell people what it is that's happened in an interesting way. So I, I got out my 30 or 40 pages. I read through them. I didn't throw them away, but I realized these people now had to go on and do things, and I would have to know what it was they were going to do. So I took two or three weeks to just work out what it was that was going to happen and, and, and took that through to the end, uh, and then I started writing. And to begin with, that book was told from about five points of view. It's so long ago, I can now hardly remember it, but there was an American journalist. There was a, I mean, there's several characters. And I realized after I'd written about half the novel that it was only interesting when the detective 
was on the was on the was at the centre of it because he was much more interesting. He was conflicted. He had a bad relationship with his son and uh, fatherland. You know, it suddenly made sense that, that that's, he had this emotional investment in the country. So I threw away all the others uh, characters and I just concentrated on him and uh, fiction. Therefore, I, the, those two hard lessons I learned: one, have some sense of how it's going to end. Otherwise, you're going to waste an awful lot of time. And by all means, depart from the plan. I didn't know the twist at the end of The Ghost, for instance, until quite late on writing that book. I didn't have it in my head to begin with. So you can depart from it. You should, otherwise it's dead before you even begin. Uh, And the other thing is point of view. And point of view determines everything. And, And in a way, the book of mine I'm most fond of is curiously, an officer and a spy, simply because it was a totally different point of view of the Dreyfus affair. And to, to start writing it, it was simply like settling into a car that then just took me, because what came across Picard's desk, what he saw, what happened, it was like being on a journey myself, and, uh, and it was, it was, it's purely because of, of the perspective. And you can take something, a very hackneyed old story, and if you just find some other... You know, w- different way of telling it. It, it comes it comes alive. It's interesting that you you say you when you went back to the material, you thought you had to find an interesting way of conveying it. And it seems to me that one thing that you you really excel excel at in your your fiction. Um, is obviously is suspense, is gripping the reader. I mean, I remember the first time I read Fatherland, I was reading it on the tube, and I'm amazed I got home safe, really, because I didn't want to look up from the book. You know, I was walking towards escalators, reading it, turning over the pages. And one thing that gives your novels terrific appeal and grip, I think, is that they're often race against time scenarios, aren't they? I mean, in Fatherland, there's the race to expose the realities of the Nazi death camps before the Hitler's 75th birthday celebrations. In Enigma, it's urgent that they must recover the means of deciphering the code. In Archangel, they've got to get to Archangel before it's locked in for the winter. Even in the uh, first of the um, Cicero novels, um, it's very urgent, the timescale. It's a very short timescale that Cicero has to gather crucial material for what's probably going to be one of the most important um, trials that that he's going to take part in in his life. Um, There's a lot of adrenaline that way. And I'm sort of um, asking this partly because I I wonder if that relates to something in the way you write, in that one of the things that very much impresses me about your books is that you often set yourself a very tight deadline for writing the book. And do you find that that helps when you're writing, or there is a very tight deadline anyway, one that comes up. Uh, yes, well, there's, there's two things there, really. Yeah. One is um, the only real contract I would like to make with a reader is I will, I will genuinely try not to bore you, you know. Yeah. I will... Uh, um, I think all things can be excused if you're not boring. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, and a tight time frame enables you to throw out a lot of stuff 
I mean, you know, God, uh, the, the Cicero trilogy takes place over 25 years, and the Dreyfus novel over 12 years. So, you know, I don't always do that. No, but as a general rule, I think to, I would love to write a book, a novel in real time, as it were, that, that lasted about you know, five or six hours that it took to, to read it. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's a great discipline. And uh, so I like that. It, you can't always do it, but uh, it's, 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 a, it's a, uh, a cliche of uh, thriller writing uh, is uh, have a tight time scale and shorten it. You know, <laughs> on page four, <laughs> yes, something yeah. happens. Uh, so, so there is that, and I'm instinctively drawn to um, suspense and to uh, things happening and to uh, excitement. Uh, and uh, uh, Woody Allen, when he was doing comedies, which for me are by far his best movies, he just liked to get two and a half laughs in the can every day, he used to say. And in a funny way, as a, a writing, if I think I can get two and a half things that people are going to be interested in in a day's work, I'm satisfied. Uh, and then there is this thing of writing quickly. Well, you know, this is what sort of a career you have as a writer. I mean, you can either take years to write a novel, and, uh, or you can say, you can take a kind of existentialist almost view, as like the top of the ski slope, I, I'm just going to go for this. And uh, when I was a journalist, I found that the best columns I wrote, the best pieces, were the ones where I woke up at 8 o'clock in the morning without an idea in my head and had to give something in at one o'clock in the afternoon. And the adrenaline of not knowing what it was going to be almost invariably produced a better piece of work than if I dutifully spent two or three days researching and was trying to put in all the, all the things. And I think there is something about that with novels too. If you can get your imagination to a slightly... Uh, altered state, maybe through fear <laughs> of that, you know, you've got to get it done by that time, you, you will get something which you wouldn't otherwise do if you had two, three years or indefinite period to do it. So uh, that's become a conscious thing for me. Uh, it's, the publishers like to bring the novel out in September or October, means I have to deliver it in June or July, so I have to start writing it in January or so. Uh, that's become a kind of my cycle, work cycle. And I don't think it's a, it's a bad thing until it goes terribly wrong, which it may well do this year, incidentally. <laughs> uh, but if it doesn't go wrong, it seems to me not a bad way of working. Yes, I'd wondered if it was a kind of extension of journalistic, meeting journalistic deadlines that's something that you got used to and yeah, writing with this kind of adrenaline and concentration that you'd have to have. Well, you must know it too as a journalist and, I, and everyone here if you're a student or whoever, you know that business of the overnight essay crisis. The, the, you know, and it is genuinely often better. I think we all feel that our best work is often done under pressure, not under ideal laboratory conditions. And certainly the great you know, 19th century novels were written against the deadline of weekly or monthly magazines. Uh, the copy handed over... And, uh, of course, it led to, you know, huge mistakes, characters, things went wrong. We all know, you know, in, in Dickens and so on, characters disappeared, then had to be brought back, or they changed their eye colour and, and so on. Uh, but, you know, nevertheless, I think you can get something from that, and, and I, I'm, I'm a believer in that. 
just briefly talking about, you just mentioned the great 19th century novels. <clears throat> Do any of the 19th century, like Trollope, palace and sequence of novels about um, politics, is that a kind of book that would have any influence on you, or is that not the way that you would particularly want to write about politics because it's dealing with politics that are more or less contemporary with the author's own life? Oh, well, I love the Palace of Books. I've read mm. the Palace of Books, and, and God bless BBC Two, they're repeating the Palace of Series at the moment, at lunchtimes on BBC Two, uh, and I record it and I'm watching them all, and it's, it's, they're wonderful. Yeah. I think the difference is that at the time that Trollope was writing, British politics was the fulcrum of the world's politics. It was, uh, you know, it was the great issue, moral issues of the world were being fought out in the House of Commons, and uh, it was also the most powerful legislature in the world by far. So everything, it was important. Um, I'm afraid that's simply not the case now. And uh, an honest novel about uh, modern British politics um, would have to take account of that fact. And one of the reasons that I decided to write about um, Cicero uh, was that it was much more interesting to write about the collapse of the Roman Republic than it was to write to make up, you know, the MP for Loneshire and the chief whip having the affair with the Minister of Agriculture and all that sort of stuff. Uh, in this, you know, uh, island where things are less important. And you feel that, you know, if you're going to write a political novel, it ought to be in America or it ought to be somewhere where it has more of an impact. And I don't feel, uh, therefore, that um, it's easy to write a big political, British political novel. Um, My own attempt was uh, The Ghost, and that is about uh, a man who's fallen from power... um, and that figure, the idea of the fallen leader and the uh, exile, is, it has more of a human interest than a day-to-day uh, political novel would have for me. I regret, th- I regret this. I mean, I, I may, and it may be that some, some huge Trilopian, uh, the way we live now, lies in the phone-hacking scandal <clears throat> and the way that takes in a dead body in the East End and the... Prime Minister in a party at the, in, in Oxfordshire and, uh, you know, it brings in uh, all aspects of show business and everything into some great melange and it is quite a good story. That might be possible. Uh, but, but a conventional on the floor of the House of Commons novel, I don't know. I mean, having said that, you know, I think one of the things about this our talk tonight was the passion that I feel for politics and how interesting it is. To watch yesterday afternoon David Cameron and Boris Johnson was to see, one of, was to see something quite extraordinary and interesting and the coded battle between them, rather like the Miliband brothers and their falling out and the things that have flown from that brotherly discord. It's Shakespearean. What, what, what has happened to the Labour Party is a result of two brothers not being able to get on. I mean, you know, this is the personal and the political combined in a way that I find terrifically exciting. You know, politics is about, uh, it is about these kind of things. Things do turn on that. Exactly. And also, of course, one thing that you very much <clears throat> are concerned with, I think, in your Roman novels is not just showing 
in one way how different <clears throat> the Roman world of politics was, but how very similar it is to our own. I mean, you, you, you draw contemporary parallels, and often I think the feeling is, when, someone, when reading the, the Cicero trilogy in particular, that you're really seeing political paradigms and prototypes and blueprints for the way politics will keep being, really. Yes, I think so. I mean, and oddly enough, you mentioned Anthony Trollope. Trollope wrote a two-volume life of Cicero. Uh, He was obsessed with Cicero, uh, Trollope, and there was quite a lot of uh, uh, Ciceronian politics in the palaces, uh, and I think, you know, that that is handed on, and I think the truth is that there are sort of basic rules about politics and, and types of people in politics and things that come up that don't, haven't really changed in, the, in, in the over 2,000 years. And uh, the revelation to me researching the Cicero's books was how sophisticated, unbelievably sophisticated, the Roman democratic system was. Of course, not a democracy as we would say. Women couldn't vote. Slaves couldn't vote. It was weighted in the interests of the rich. So we, we have to accept all that. But then you say annual elections for the two most powerful people in the Republic and they have to share power, one in one month, one the next and so on throughout the year. You elect the eight senior justices every year. You elect the four men who run Rome. And then you elect the ten tribunes of the people who propose the legislation. The Senate doesn't propose legislation, the tribunes do, the people. All laws are voted in voted on by the people in the centre of Rome. And all the magistrates, all the senior politicians are seen every day by the people. And they have to go among the people. Uh, ambition, ambitus, working, walking around, meeting the voters, you know. Don't tell me this is an ex- a much more healthily functioning democracy than our own, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, and uh, so you see the law in f- going on in front of you. You have these extraordinary election campaigns. One of the most sophisticated election campaign books was written by Cicero's brother, Quintus, which, is, which we can still read now. And all the things that they talked about elections still apply today. So I found this incredibly rich material uh, to work with. And part of what I like to do is really write procedural novels. That is, you know, uh, Code Breaker, you know, where did you sit? What did you actually do physically as a Code Breaker in 1942 or 1943? And in the, or in Pompeii, if you were the guy running the aqueduct around the Bay of Naples, what would you have actually done when Vesuvius was on the verge of erupting. What physically did you have to do? You loaded up the wagons, you went out. How did you try and fix it? And in the Cicero books, it's how did the, what were the nuts and bolts of how this system worked? How did you win an election? How did you stand up in the Roman Senate and hold the attention of 600 people? How did you speak to 2,500 people, 3,000, 4,000 people in the forum without any amplification, maybe for two and a half or three hours in the pouring rain or the boiling sun, how, how did you manage it? And uh, that, for me, uh, was what really made me want to write the books, to just sort of say, what was it day-to-day like? And that's the justification for me for fiction. I can do that. Uh, I'm licensed to do that in fiction in a way that a scholar isn't. 
And uh, I think that that's something worth doing. That, that kind of passion very much comes through the Cicero books. And of course, they're now white, very widely acclaimed. They've been, it, the trilogy has been a tremendous success. <clears throat> I just wonder what it was like when you first pitched the idea to your publisher. When, <laughs> uh, after writing a novel that, that was set in Pompeii just before Vesuvius erupted, and you said you'd had a wonderful idea, and your next book was going to be about the life of Cicero, and it was going to actually consist of three novels. Did they, did they gulp, or, or, or did they immediately think it was a great idea? Oddly enough, the novel they gulped at was Pompeii, because, oh, really? uh, yes, yeah, I'd yeah, written yeah. Um, Fatherland, Enigma and Archangel, mm. and uh, uh, then there was a long gap, about five years, when I didn't write, didn't publish a book. Mm. And uh, my, I, 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 I set off, having fin- written those first three books, I thought, well, I've done Russia and Germany and Britain, I should now write something set in the United States. And I thought, well, why don't I set something set slightly in the future in the United States? Uh, and and my, I, this was in 1998, 1999, and my idea was uh, uh, the, the, the world's only superpower, the utopia that is America, as it felt then in 1999, uh, but under threat. What is the threat? And I, I thought I would write it about a giant entertainment conglomerate with its own uh, kind of world uh, and its own founder and its own ideology and its own town and its own, you know. And, of course, this is the Walt Disney uh, Corporation. Uh, and I thought that's what I would do. It would be sort of like a dystopia. Mickey Mouse takes over the world. So I spent quite a long time in Walt Disney World <laughs> on, on my own, uh, leaving the children behind, setting off every FBI paedophile computer, I'm sure. And uh, I was... Uh, and I couldn't make this damn novel work in any way. And uh, the, 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 the moment of despair came when I was checking into the Grand Floridian Hotel in Walt Disney World, and a couple came across the lobby. And uh, one was wearing uh, a black tuxedo with black silk Mickey Mouse ears. And with him was a woman in a white silk wedding dress wearing white silk Mickey Mouse ears. And I said to the receptionist, who are they? And she said, oh, they're going to get married on the platform overlooking Sleeping Beauty's castle. (laughs) I said, does this happen very often? She said, it happens 12 times a day. Uh, And at that point, I realised I couldn't satirise this uh, institution. And that all my my sort of liberal Fabian kind of sneery satire wilted in the face of this extraordinary phenomenon. So I returned home, cast down, because I'd wasted 18 months. And then I saw a story in a, in a Daily Telegraph, which was uh, new research on the destruction of Pompeii. And I, I, you know, I really did think, why don't I write about America through Rome, why don't, and now it's a cliche, but at that time it wasn't, and I thought I'll make the Bay of Naples my Florida, I'll make Pompeii my celebration, you know, the Walt Disney town, and that's how I came to write Pompeii, purely as an attempt to write about uh, um, a a powerful, uh, civilised state under threat, and uh, that, and I had to go and tell my uh, editor that I wasn't writing this dystopian novel about America anymore. And we went, we went out to lunch and I said, 
okay, get this, I'm writing a novel about Pompeii. <laughs> and uh, there was a sort of frozen silence. And uh, she said, well, who are the characters? And I said, this was early days, I said, well, Pliny the Elder. And <laughs> <coughs> <coughs> she looked at me and she said, couldn't we at least make it Pliny the Younger? <laughs> uh, so anyway, I... Uh, I wrote it, and, and that book was, was actually uh, probably the biggest selling book. I think it may have sold more copies than Fatherland, in fact. So uh, it was a success, and therefore uh, they, they thought that I could do no wrong when it came to uh, Roman books. And when I said I'll write three books about uh, Roman Republic, it was all, go ahead, honey, you know, <laughs> fine. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so, you know, that's the way uh, publishing works. But, I mean, you know... It's, uh, I, I, I realised once I'd started it that I would go mad if, if I only wrote those three novels and that, and that very just as the first one came out I had the idea for The Ghost. Yeah. So having done all these interviews about Imperium saying I would never ever write a novel about contemporary politics because it would just be a Roman clay, I found myself <laughs> writing a Roman clay about uh, British politics. Uh, and, and so the pattern was set of doing a, a Roman novel and then a, then a contemporary novel. Well, you, <coughs> you've just been talking about a novel <coughs> that you didn't write, <coughs> excuse me, the Walt Disney novel. Um, you're currently writing um, <coughs> a novel, I and mean, it's very good of you to take time off <coughs> from doing it because I know that your deadline is, is very tight. Um, and I know that the subject of the novel has been kept under wraps until now, but I wonder if you would tell us what, what your new book is going to be about and how it relates to your... <laughs> <coughs> I think I'm crossing my fingers here. Um, and um, how it relates to your interest in politics, because I think it's very interesting. It could be. <coughs> well, I'm probably going to be killed for saying this. Uh, <coughs> uh, I'm writing a novel... Uh, and please don't all laugh or uh, get with horror struck. I'm writing a novel about a fictional papal conclave uh, set over 72 hours uh, inside the Vatican. It's, I mean, I'm interested in enclosed worlds and I'm interested in how power uh, operates. And I think there's something very interesting about the church and uh, those issues. So... That is what I'm doing. And, uh, well, there we are. Who knows? I, I'm supposed to finish it by the end of June. Uh, and if I can, I will. <laughs> and if not, not. Well, we'll I'm, I'm sure we're all praying that uh, <coughs> you will finish it. But, um, it, again, it's a novel that must entail an awful lot of research, I would assume. Uh, yes, yes it, yes, it does. And, uh, but that's the pleasure. You know, uh, I, I've been incredibly lucky... Uh, to write, because I've been in, I feel in, my, in a way I've been to all these places. I know it sounds a terrible cliche to say, but I feel that I've been at Bletchley Park. I feel I've been in Rome and 19th century Paris, and that, you know, uh, to spend your time thinking about them, going to places, steeping yourself in it, is, is for me the great joy of the job, uh, actually. And uh, I've enjoyed it hugely and I've enjoyed doing a variety of, of different subjects um, I've I don't wish to compare myself in any way here 
but I've always admired uh, Stanley Kubrick's uh, career uh, in that he could take his preoccupations and his ideas and he could do for France in the First World War Dr. Strangelove, Barry Lyndon, 2001, the Vietnam War, uh, sexual intrigue in New York, or whatever. He could do any place. Uh, and I think that that's a, that's a great thing to, to, to try and emulate, to try and do something like that, to, uh, to, to move around. And if you, the, the things that I'm interested in, uh, the power and, and the way it operates on people and changes people and the way they grasp for it and so on, is the same in any institution, Catholic Church, Bletchley Park, Nazi Germany, wherever, you know, you get the same impulses, desire to command and, uh, and the compromises that are necessary, and that's, you know, that's what I uh, enjoy writing about. Well, we'll all look forward very much indeed to finding out what happens in the Sistine Chapel. Yes, yeah, so will I, as I don't actually quite know you. <laughs> um, I'm very conscious that, <coughs> excuse me, time is going by, and I'm sure that um, there are people here who are eager to ask questions themselves. So I think we'll now take questions <coughs> from the audience. Do we have microphones? Yes. Yeah. Uh, will you wait until you get the microphone before you ask the question, please, and then so that we... Um, Everybody can hear. Okay, who would like to ask the first question? Yeah, I think that hand there went up, first of all. <coughs> Lady there. <coughs> Thank you, that was really interesting. Um, you talked a bit about research, and I'm quite interested in, in truth. Truth is very slippery, of course. I mean, you've got, you've got moral truths, emotional truths, factual truths. They're not necessarily the same. And you've got the truth and the whole truth, which is different again. And I just wondered, in your historical fiction, do you feel a great responsibility to get the truth right, to see yourself as, you know, getting the narrative correct? I mean, I know, obviously, Germany didn't win the war in Fatherland and so on. But the, you know, the detail, the, the, the conceptual truths, right? Or with Enigma, for example, the whole truth. I think there's yes. some controversy around that book. So I'm interested well, in that. Well, I, I, uh, I do try... To get, the tr to get it truthful, because I don't think anyone can write a novel unless they believe it's the truth. Uh, and if you, if you depart from the truth, then, uh, then the thing becomes false and dies in your hand. What you have to do, I think, which again is very different to what a historian does, is uh, you have to construct uh, a narrative out of something which may go on for a very long time. For instance, the Dreyfus Affair starts in 1894, doesn't end until 1906. Uh, you know, no one in fiction could, could encompass that without leaving out a vast amount of material. And that's what I did in that book in particular. You know, whole individuals are excised from it. You know, I, I have to just go into to that part. But I do try and be truthful. An enigma... Uh, I think is a truthful book. Enigma actually takes a, a real convoy battle. And uh, the paradox at the heart of that book is that the worse the, the losses of the Allied ships were, the more clues and breaks the codebreakers got into getting back into uh, reading the uh, shark, the U-boat cipher. Now, if there was a very real temptation for me as a novelist to suggest that the British might have deliberately sacrificed a convoy for the greater good of breaking the U-boat code and 
sinking the German U-boats. That didn't happen. Uh, and and uh, it was a sort of lie, like the kind of slight myth about Coventry. And I thought, I can't do that. I shouldn't do that. And I wouldn't do that. Uh, so I do try to be truthful. Of course, where the demands of writing a novel and the demands of being a scholar clash, I obviously have to choose a novel. I'm, I'm writing novels. But I have genuinely tried to, to be accurate uh, and not to... Um, uh, not to embellish the truth. And by and large, the truth doesn't need embellishment. Wherever there's something in my book which is unbelievable, it's what really happened. <laughs> and wherever there's something prosaic and yawn-making, it's something that I've invented, almost <laughs> without fail. Thanks, Robert. Um, yes, uh, gentlemen here. There's a mic on its way to you. Hi there. Um, I have a question about uh, George Orwell. Um, to what extent uh, how, were you influenced by him politically and also to what extent were you influenced him in terms of his uh, writing about political events? Um, well, thank you. That's a, uh, I, I, it was indeed a very powerful influence on me. I remember uh, the day that I read uh, 1984 uh, when I was 14 or 15, uh, very clearly. Uh, and uh, I think that Orwell is the great uh, example uh, for a writer uh, such as myself. So he famously said he wanted to turn political writing into an art, uh, by which I don't, he didn't mean that he wanted to write flowery <coughs> phrases and beautiful essays, although he did write brilliant essays, I think he meant that he wanted to apply the power of imagination to political ideas. Uh, and of course in the two great novels which is remembered, 1984 and Animal Farm, that's exactly what he did. And 1984 uh, stands as the great argument for fiction in my view, um, drawn from you know, the ideas of Burdom and the managerial revolution and all the things that were going on in the world, the way the world might develop. Uh, he could have written a non-fiction book, uh, Orwell. I would, I'm sure, have written a brilliant non-fiction book. Uh, but I can almost guarantee you it wouldn't be read. Uh, but by inventing characters and inventing an imaginary world, he, he, he sealed what he, he wanted to write in its own hermetic bubble became timeless work of the imagination and therefore will always be read and will never date. Uh, and uh, there is often a debate about whether, you know, we said to live in a golden age of non-fiction, which in, to some degree I think is true. But in the end, non-fiction will always fade. You know, there will be another great novel, a, a book about Stalingrad. There will be another great biography of Churchill. There will always be... These things will always be rewritten. But a novel, a work of the imagination, is imperishable, I think, if it's any good. And, and that's the great argument for fiction, and that's the great argument for, for, for trying to write uh, um, political fiction, it, it seems to me. I mean, you know, the long-dead controversies of Victorian uh, politics um, contrast those with uh, Trollope's novels, which are still... Uh, speak to us. So, I mean, I think Orwell is, is a brilliant example of, of, of the importance of applying the imagination to politics. Thanks. Um, yes, the lady at the end of the row there. 
Could I ask you if you have a favourite 19th century novel, and if so, what it is and why? Um, yes, I would say that uh, it's Great Expectations, actually, which I think is probably... I think, uh, I think one of the greatest novels ever written. Um, I think because it's so... Uh, well, first of all, it's an extremely ingenious story. Uh, and it occupies a sort of hinterland between dream-like quality and reality. Uh, and it seems to me to be a brilliant uh, study of s- snobbery and f- falsity. Um, and I think it's the most perfect of all Dickens's books. Uh, and for me, that if, if I had to pick one novel from, from the 19th century, I'd pick Great Expectations. Um, there are other novels which are uh, not quite in the 19th century. Conrad's A Secret Agent, I think, is a, is a, is a brilliant novel. Um, but I would, I, yes, I'd pick uh, 1980. <laughs> Great Expectations, I'm sorry. Thanks. Um, I think there's, some, was, there's someone in the same row who wanted to ask a question, or nearby. Yeah, <clears throat> just behind. <clears throat> I know that you adapted your novel The Ghost into The Ghostwriter, and you're working on an adaptation of An Officer and a Spy into a film. Had you worked on screenplays before, and how have you found adapting your work? Um, well, I've only I've written uh, four screenplays, all from my own uh, work, um, and uh, one has been made so far, which is pretty <laughs> good strike rate, actually. Uh, I started off by writing Pompeii uh, with uh, Roman Polanski, uh, uh, and that um, was all set to go, and then uh, there was an actor's strike, and it didn't happen, uh, and I sent him... As I was writing the screenplay of that, I was writing the novel of The Ghost, um, and I sent him the novel and said, well, maybe we should make this instead. No volcanoes, no togas. I sent it as purely as a joke, and then I got a call saying, hey, you're right, let's make this instead. <laughs> and uh, to my absolute and utter astonishment, it was made. Then uh, I was hired to adapt uh, The Fear Index by 20th Century Fox. That was, I didn't enjoy that experience, really. Uh, and then uh, I only wrote An Office and a Spy because Polanski wanted to do a movie about the Dreyfus Affair. And he said, would you, you know, he asked me to do, to, to do it, uh, to look at the subject. And I thought, this is the most terrible idea I've ever heard, ever. Who, first of all, who gives a damn about the Dreyfus affair? Secondly, it goes on for 12 years. Uh, you know, and, and then I came across this character, Colonel Picar. So uh, I went back to Polanski and said, um, I don't think the Dreyfus affair, Dreyfus himself, is a great story, or very filmable or easy to do. But this guy, Picar, nobody knows about him. And here is a kind of Lacarry-ish, Tinker Taylor sort of a story, an espionage story. Maybe we could do this. And he agreed. And, uh, but after about a month of working on it, I said to him, this, is, this would be so much better done as a novel first, because I really want to get inside this man's head. And uh, to his credit... Uh, Roman said, okay, do it as a novel. We'll get a much better film uh, if you do a novel first. And that was years ago, three years ago. Uh, So, you know, thank God that I I did the novel. 
Uh, but uh, we, the screenplay is now done. Apparently the money is there. Allegedly he's going to start shooting it in June. So we will see. But uh, anyway, uh, it's odd. So my ex- I would not really... I don't, I'm not really a screenwriter, I, I feel. I think if I work with someone like Polanski, that's a great experience. But to actually sit and work for faceless executives somewhere... Uh, if I've got a good story, I would always try and do it as a novel first, personally speaking. Uh, it's a great ambition of mine to write a play. Uh, I'd love to write a play. The Ghost originally began as a play idea. And I think, actually, if you read the novel or indeed see Roman's film, you can see that it is a play. It's really just three people, or four people, in an isolated one single location. And the whole thing could just be done like that. Um, so, um, you know, I'd love to do a play, but I don't really want to do a screenplay. And, and uh, you know, I hope an officer in a spy is made. It would be great, if, uh, particularly if, to see Polanski's take on it. But, you know, we'll wait and see. Um, yes, the lady over there. <coughs> Which is your favourite Robert Harris novel and why? <laughs> <laughs> Probably the one I'm writing now, actually, uh, for, for all its faults, because uh, at the moment I haven't ruined it. I haven't screwed it up. Uh, it remains a perfect sphere of possibilities uh, that have not yet crashed to earth. Um, but um, I suppose uh, I, have, uh, I have a personal fondness for the writing of Archangel, uh, which is slightly, you know... I wouldn't say Cinderella, but it's, you know, um, probably one of the less, lesser read or known ones now, and I have a lot of time for that. But if, if I was absolutely forced to only have one, uh, I think I'd probably choose an officer and a spy because uh, it's the only time that I've finished a book. You know, I started writing that novel on January the 15th, and it was in the shops on September the 15th. Uh, and I'd only done seven or eight months' research before that. And it's a novel I don't, to, to that extent, takes me by surprise, and uh, it's a rare example of something turning out um, better than you thought it might have been. Most novels are, they fall, they're less than you hoped they would be when you started, frankly. That's the only one that I look and think that still slightly surprises me. Uh, yes, the gentleman there at the end of the row. <clears throat> I was thinking about the gaps between the Cicero books. Not a complaint, they were wonderful, thank you very much. But how did you sort of get back into the mindset for that? Because the, the novels in between were very different beasts. I was just sort of thinking when you were getting back to Rome after the, the Tony Blair book and being in Paris, how, how you sort of set yourself down and you know, did you break out the toga again to, to get into the zone? <laughs> it wasn't easy. Um, I mean, I started the research for the Roman for the Cicero books in 2003 in the summer, and the first, I suppose I did nothing really but research for two years. So because I knew it was a trilogy, and I knew I had to have all the research done because I had to know at the beginning what would happen at the end, and I had to know where the balance of characters would be and who would recur and so on. And indeed, uh, no one has spotted this, but there is a joke made by Cicero at the very beginning of Imperium where he represents 
if you've read Imperium, you might remember, he represents a young man who's charged with parricide. Uh, and this young man, uh, the penalty for parricide was to be sewn into a sack naked with a viper, a cockerel, and a dog, I think. And then the sack would be tied up and you'd be thrown into the river Tiber. And Cicero says, we've got to get this man off, if only to spare the cock, the viper, and the dog, a horror, <laughs> being tied in a sack with this fellow. And right at the end of the uh, three novels, that is the man who chops Cicero's head off. Um, and that is true. Cicero defended a parricide, and the parricide was in the death squad that killed him at the very end of the three novels. So, you know, that sort of thing I needed to get by doing all the research um, first off, even though no one's ever noticed, incidentally. <laughs> <laughs> so subtle uh, was that implanting. Um, but uh, so, so I had all the research, so I had that to go back to. And the research file, the main research file, was about half a million words, in fact. Uh, it was really a day-to-day chronology of what happened in the Roman Republic uh, over those 25 years. So I always had that to go back to. And then it was a matter of thinking myself into it again. And although probably it would have been better in some ways to have written the three novels one after the other quickly, nevertheless, I think each became quite a distinct book because they were written distinctly. Each has its own shape. They can be read in any sequence, I think. It's not necessary to go through them in order. Uh, And also, I aged with Cicero. And although that sounds a slightly (laughs) glib thing to say, I think there is a difference between being kind of, what was I when I started, uh, 39 or whatever it was, and being... uh, uh, Was I 39? I've no idea. Anyway, (laughs) it took 12 years. And, uh, you know... As you get older, there is a difference between that age and and getting nearer to 60. And uh, I think that I understood Cicero better at the end because I was closer to his age, actually. So uh, I think there was a value, oddly enough, in doing it in that that way. Uh, Yes, question here. Um, How much do you think you can or should ever write a novel that's political in the sense of pursuing an idea or a political, particular set of political views and how much is your writing completely driven by the characters and the story and where those take you rather than an underlying idea? Uh, I think there's, I think there's uh, unquestionably it has to be the characters uh, and that if you try to write a novel purely to uh, um, animate an ideology or a political point of view, it would be fatal. Um, it would be dead um, and I, felt, I feel this because of the division that I referred to earlier between the half of me that wouldn't have minded being a politician this is very, you know, when I was 20 or so uh, and the half of me that then became a writer because the two things are in total uh, an- antipathy it seems to me to be a politician or to, to subscribe to an ideology is to close your mind to whatever virtue is on the other side. Uh, and I've found this increasingly difficult as I've got older. I, I, can't, I can't take the view. I mean, I've, I've always been a, a Labour supporter. I can't take the view that this is a fascist regime. You know, that, you know, it becomes impossible. I can't believe that virtue is all on this side. Uh, and if I tried to write a novel that took that point of view, I think it would just be false and wrong. 
and I think that most people would see it as such. I can't think of a, pole- a polemical novel read from that point of view. There may be some Soviet realism kind of thing, <laughs> but the case rests, as it were. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the cliché about the estate agents, location, location, location. In, in novels, it's character, character, character. All that counts is, is whether you have empathy and belief in the characters who are on the page, whether you care about what happens to them, uh, whether they seem true to you. If, if you do that, then the reader will... Then a kind of magic occurs, and you go in, as we know as readers, you believe in these people, and the, the book comes alive. I remembered having enjoyed the BBC adaptation of War and Peace, a, a beautiful piece of criticism that George Orwell did, actually, about War and Peace, which he read when he was 20 and thought was far too short. <laughs> he, he said he could have gone on reading about Pierre and the rest of them, Hélène and so on, forever. He couldn't believe, he couldn't, it was cheated when the novel stopped. <laughs> Uh, and then he tried a bit of kind of criticism of you know the uh, petty you know the kind of minor nobility and uh, the peasant surf system and so on. But his heart wasn't in it, you know. <laughs> it was the characters that got him, and I think that that's absolutely true. So I mean, I think you you would always have to go with character. Yes, there's someone who's been waiting patiently here. <clears throat> Thank you. Just a brief question, but hopefully a long answer. How do you, could you describe your work day? <laughs> uh, well, um, I, uh, get, I, I'm a blessed, uh, well, my wife would say cursed, uh, with uh, early rising syndrome. Uh, basically, when it's light, I tend to get up. So uh, I, especially as the days start to get a bit longer, I get up quite early, um, and I really try and finish my writing stint by lunchtime. I think you've only got um, four or five hours, really, of good creative work in you. Uh, And really, what is it? You just want... If you've got, say, one or two scenes to write or something like that, you just really should be happy to do those scenes and not try and press on and do a third or a fourth because actually you probably will end up having to rewrite them because you're already starting to get tired. So I tend to try and start early, finish fairly early, have lunch, have a drink, uh, and uh, then forget about it if I can. And uh, another thing I've learned about writing over 25 years or so of fiction is uh, what Stephen King calls the boys in the basement do a lot of it, the subconscious... The, uh, we all have that thing where you wake up in the morning that problems have been solved because somehow you've been thinking about it overnight. I think that's very true of writing. You know, you, um, uh, a lot of things come to you and they're there the next morning. And I normally start the next morning by looking over what I've done the day before, correcting it, hopefully improving it, and then going on from there. Uh, I think there's another thing as well Stephen King talks about who's very good on the business of writing, which is that very early in the morning, just when you wake, almost in that state before you've quite woken, is the most creative time. Um, There's something about the way the brain is operating, uh, and I think, therefore, it's quite good to 
get straight up. I mean, I quite often have my bath the night before and get, so I can just get straight up and get started. I think that's the very most creative part of the day is the first hour or two. From then on, for me, especially if I've had a drink, it's all downhill. <laughs> Thank you. What about well, the research <coughs> phase, just before you start the writing phase? Sorry? How's your research day? before you start the writing phase? Uh, well, research days are obviously very different. I mean, and that's just sort of... Uh, that can just be sort of brutal, stacanovite labour, really, uh, just uh, working your way through everything. And uh, I certainly, when I was writing non-fiction, I, uh, maybe it was because I was younger, but I found I could do two and a half, three thousand words of uh, non-fiction. But I'd be... If I, ever, if I go over a thousand words of fiction, I reckon that I will, either I will write less the next day uh, or I'll be writing stuff I'll have to co- correct. I mean, I, I feel that that's about the, about the limit of what I can do. Well, I think that... Uh, well, just one more question, then. <coughs> now, you say that the last question is always a lunatic. So... Uh, <laughs> You've, you've blown the gaffer. So I'm just well, warning what, you. What, what, I actually, what I actually said was that it's such a pity sometimes that you feel that the questions have been so good and then you fatally hear yourself saying, we'll just take one more question. And Not the person is, is raving mad. And I, I wonder if I could sometimes say... We'll now take questions from the audience and would the lunatic ask their question first? <laughs> I'm sure you're entirely sane and shrewd and acute, so <laughs> we've probably terrified you, but w- would you like to falter out your question? <clears throat> well, maybe not a lunatic, but a yank. Um, and just <laughs> one question. When you were doing um, An Officer and a Spy, was there any kind of dialogue-heavy draft considering that there was... Of, there was possibly going to be a film. Did you have a, a, a draft that was very dialogue heavy, or just was that why it was so fast? Um, that's a really sane question, if I may say so. <laughs> I, I, was ju- of, I was just thinking that. Absolutely <laughs> sane. Uh, I think that um, The Officer and a Spy is the longest novel I've written. It's 150,000 <coughs> words, uh, which is huge, really, and the film will be two hours. So there's no real uh, correlation between the two. And for me, the, 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 the pleasure of writing the novel was that I could go into Picard's head and just write as much as I wanted. And uh, you know, most of that can never be shown on screen. So um, there, are, there are key, obviously, episodes which remain, but the dialogue of the two, I think, will be quite dif- different. I did have the very amusing experience of giving a manuscript of a novel to Roman Polanski to, as it were, proofread or copy, copy edit. <coughs> I just said, well, read it, see what you think. And uh, thinking I'd never hear much from him. On the contrary, uh, the, the, f- the phone rang. He said, I have some notes <coughs> for you. Um, I said, oh, well, that's very kind of you. He said, yeah, well, it'll probably take three or four phone calls. Anyway, we'll begin. Page Page one. You have Picard comes into the office of the Minister of War. He doesn't, his voice isn't quite like this, but bear with me. You have Picard comes into the office of the Minister of War. They are warming the backs of their legs against a fire and they turn to look at me as I come in. 
You coming down the fucking chimney or what? <laughs> And they all proceeded along roughly that. <coughs> and were very, very useful, I can tell you. Well, <coughs> on that note, I think we'll end. I, <coughs> I, I'm not going to tempt fate by asking for another question. <coughs> um, but before <coughs> we finish, and um, before Robert goes to sign books, um, on behalf of myself and <coughs> everyone here, I think, um, I would like to thank Robert very much indeed for a really fascinating, entertaining, funny, thought-provoking talk and for taking time off for communing with cardinals in the Vatican, <laughs> Vatican to come along and talk to us this evening. So thank you very much indeed, Robert. Um, could I simply add my thanks to that? Um, Robert, I've found your work tremendously gripping to read, uh, and we've, you've talked this evening uh, about uh, uh, how gripping your novels can be, uh, and it's been completely gripping to hear you uh, talk this evening as well. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, we very much hope, all of us here, I'm sure, that the, adre the adrenaline pushing you to your June deadline will uh, do brilliantly with the uh, papal states. Uh, we owe great thanks to you, Peter, uh, for your marvellous questioning, uh, which uh, uh, drew out uh, and uh, uh, enabled uh, Robert to speak so fluently. And, if I may say, not just sane, but also very good questions from the audience. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, now, um, I think we will let, if we may, uh, Robert get outside so that he can get to the book stall, uh, which is, uh, and there are, he is selling books and is happy to sign them there. Uh, that is if you turn left out of the auditorium. I don't think there's political significance to this, but if you turn right, uh, you will get to the Royal Society of Literature um, uh, desk. Uh, and I just want to say that as part of our uh, season at the Royal Society of Literature, um, our next events um, are an event marking the centenary of Henry James's death, uh, a panel discussion including Alan Hollinghurst, the novelist. Uh, we have our T.S. Eliot uh, annual memorial event, a poetry reading uh, with Simon Armitage and other poets. Uh, and we have Rowan Williams speaking on Dostoevsky. Uh, now, if you join the Royal Society of Literature as one of our members, uh, which will cost you £50 if you're over 30 and £30 if you're under 30. I can't quite remember where the 30-year-olds themselves fall, but uh, we'll take you into the £30 bracket as well. Uh, we also uh, have a special gift for you uh, this evening. Uh, for the first five people who join us, we have um, a hardback first edition of Paul Muldoon's latest collection of poetry, shortlisted for the Poetry <coughs> Prize, uh, for, the, for the Forward Prize for Poetry. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. We've got five copies of that to the first five people who would like to join us and you will get free to those events. You'll also get a free copy of the RSL Review, our magazine, which has uh, an interview uh, with... Um, has an article about literary couples, including uh, Robert and his wife, Jill Hornby, if you wanted to read that, so please do. But I wonder if we could uh, end this evening with another round of applause for Robert. Robert.